Acts 15. Last uh, Sunday, we examined the first, well, uh, two-thirds of this chapter, the verses 1 to 29. And today, we're going to be now looking at um, the end of the chapter, beginning in verse 30. So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. This is from the Jerusalem Council. They gave a letter as to how to handle some of these uh, issues of conflict, as to whether circumcision was required uh, for the gospel of grace, and it's not. And they were making that very clear. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. And after they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. Verse 35, but Paul and Barnabas, and by the way, verse 34 um, is not in some translations because the verse does not have textual evidence in the earlier manuscripts, and therefore it's uh, possibly uh, not included in the original uh, writings. Anyway, verse 35, but Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. And Barnabas was desirous of taking John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him, along with who had deserted them in Pamphylia, who had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed being committed to the brethren, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we read this portion of your word and as we think about it, as we try to understand that which the Spirit of God wants us to glean from it. We pray that we might understand the gospel more clearly, to understand that uh, there is hope for conflict, there is hope for disagreement, there is hope uh, between brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray that you would guide us uh, through this text and help us, Lord, to see how it applies to our everyday life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Ken Sandy is an author of a very, very helpful book. I would highly recommend to you, I'm sorry I forgot to bring my copy with me this morning, an excellent book entitled Peacemakers. Peacemakers. Not peacekeepers, peacemakers. And it's a very biblical examination of the topic of conflict. As a matter of fact, the subtitle is A Biblical Guide to Resolving Personal Conflict. And let me just take a moment here and just say, a couple of, uh, in earlier years, earlier months, we have offered a class called Resolving Everyday Conflict based on the teachings and the writings of this particular study on resolving conflict based on the Bible's principles. How many of you have been through that course, Resolving Everyday Conflict? Okay, many of you have. How many of you have not been through that material? Okay, a number of you. Uh, I want to strongly urge you to, to come. If we were offering that class again, I urge you to come. And make it a priority, because let's be honest, folks, you're going to run into conflict everywhere you look. It's everywhere. 
It's in your home. It's among your neighbors. It's among your coworkers. It's among your friends. It's everywhere. It's among church members. And so it's important to be armed and to know exactly how God wants us to resolve it. Well, I want us to think in your notes here. I've got lots of notes here. We're going to give you some of the uh, insights that uh, Ken Sandy has gleaned regarding conflict. And he says there are four primary causes of conflict. And he gives biblical examples of each one. Four causes of conflict. Number one, misunderstanding. Misunderstanding resulting from poor communication. And he cites the example of the two and a half tribes that are further east of Jordan. There's a misunderstanding as to whether or not they were going to stay with them when it comes to fighting or whatever. All right, number one, misunderstanding. Number two, differences in values, goals, gifts, calling, priorities, expectations, interests, or opinions. There's a difference among opinions. That's what we have right here in Acts 15. Look at that in just a minute. Number three, competition over limited resources. So that you have Abram and his nephew Lot, and they can't agree, and all their herdsmen, they're like, hey, we don't have enough going on here. You've got to split. You've got to go in your own way. We have to use our own wells. We have to have our own grazing land. So they had some conflict over that. Number four, sinful attitudes and habits that lead to sinful words and actions. That's a very common one, unfortunately. Number four, sinful attitudes and habits. Now, I'm going to add a number five. This is not Sandy. This is me. I haven't written my book yet, but this is what I would add to the book. There will be differences. One of the causes of conflict is differences in people who do not hold to an orthodox fundamental doctrine when it comes to the essence of the gospel of grace. So, for example, the first part of chapter 15 we looked at last week. There was conflict going on in the church. They brought them all together. They had to sit down and settle the matter of doctrine when it comes to the fundamentals of the faith. Now, having said all those, I would like to just say Sandy, of course, has some very helpful words in his book, and I've given those words to you in your notes. Follow along with me now. Some very helpful comments by Sandy, Ken Sandy. He says, conflict is not necessarily bad. In fact, the Bible teaches that some differences are natural, some differences are beneficial. Since God has created us as unique individuals, human beings will often have different opinions. I hope you figured that out by now. Different, uh, uh, different convictions, different desires, perspectives, priorities. And many of these differences are not inherently right or wrong. They are simply the result of God-given diversity and personal preferences. And that's what we're going to be looking at today in the latter part of Acts 15. When handled properly, disagreements in these areas can stimulate productive dialogue, encourage creativity, promote helpful change, and generally make life more interesting. Therefore, although we should seek unity in our relationships, we should not demand uniformity. And he cites Ephesians 4 there. Instead of avoiding all conflicts or demanding that others always agree with us, we should rejoice in the diversity of God's creation and learn to accept and work with people who simply see things differently than we do. And then he cites two examples from Romans. More importantly, the Bible teaches that we should see conflict neither as inconvenience 
nor as an occasion to force your will on others, but rather as an opportunity to demonstrate the love and power of God in our lives. Now, I would underline that last sentence. That kind of conflict over differences in personality, differences in preferences, is really an opportunity to have an opportunity to demonstrate the love and the power of God in our lives. Now, did everybody get that? Did you understand what he said? Okay, let's close in prayer. I mean, he said a mouthful right there. A lot of biblical wisdom there. But I want us to stop and spend a few more moments on expanding on this passage from Acts 15 at the end of the chapter, verse 30 and following, on people who disagree in that second category over preferences, opinions, and those kind of things. Values, goals, those kind of things. All right. And I'm going to answer three questions as we look through this text. Here's the three uh, questions we're going to get answers to. Number one, who do we find in the midst of this conflict? Who? Number two, what do we find happened in the middle of this conflict between these two people? And thirdly, what are the benefits that were gained as a result of the conflict? So now you know where we're going. You know the questions we're going to ask. Here are the answers. Let's look at that. Number one, who do we find in the midst of the conflict? We find the last apostle chosen by Jesus Christ, Paul, is engaged in serious conflict with Barnabas, who was known to be a person respected as an early prophet, an early teacher in the early church. And both of these men are godly men. Both of these men are brothers in Christ. Both of these men are co-laborers for Christ. Both of these men were just completed a 12-month church planting trip, having gone through the Roman uh, province of Galatia. And both of these men were well-respected by the leadership, by the members of the Syrian Antioch church. They had both labored in discipling and evangelizing in the church there in Syria, Antioch. And that church was so respected, they sent them out to do further work in places that didn't have churches. As a matter of fact, we read in the beginning of verse chapter 13 that the Holy Spirit set them apart, Paul and Barnabas. And both, we could say, shared a love for Christ, a zeal for gospel ministry, that involved evangelism and discipleship. And both of these men, it must be recorded also, they had risked their lives for the sake of the name of Jesus, for the sake of of the gospel in this previous trip they had just come back from all over Galatia. But while they shared many things in common, these men were different. They were not the same. They differed by having, number one under B, is contrasting personalities. Contrasting personalities. Paul was a visionary leader. He was a man who was driven. I think that's a fair comment to to say that that's what Paul was like. He was not a person to sit still long. He is driven to make things happen. He's gifted that way. He's an accomplishment-oriented person. Is there something wrong with people like that? No. Can they be a 
can they be a person that sometimes steamrolls over people? Yes, it's possible. He was courageous. He was never one, well, certainly we could say he was never naturally inclined to compromise. He was a man of his convictions. I mean, he stood, stood, stood tall and he stood brave many a time. Barnabas, on the other hand, what a different kind of guy. He was a people person. Even his name Barnabas is a nickname. Did you know his real name is Joseph? And they gave him this name, Nick, uh, uh, sorry, Barnabas, because he was known to be a son of encouragement. A person who, and bar, by the way, is a, is a word in Hebrew means son. Son of encouragement. He was a person who was known to be one who brought many hopeful words and comments. He was a compassionate person. A person who saw the potential in other people. Ever known someone like that? They can just see this guy is just a, a diamond in the rough. We just got to work with him. There's a lot of potential here. He was a nurturer. As a matter of fact, if you look back in the previous sections of, of the uh, book of Acts, it is Barnabas who was the only guy among all the early Christians who saw the potential in this guy named Saul who came to faith as a former persecutor and he made sure to bring him out from where he had been hiding and welcomed him among the church, made sure that people began to associate with him and stop being afraid of him. It was, it was Barnabas reaching out to him. It was also Barnabas who had been sent to Antioch to do the work of the, of the early church starting to form there. And he says, I need help. I'm going to bring Saul in here. I'm going to bring Paul in here to help me. But at some point, during the first journey that these two men had gone on, this missionary journey, they had reversed their roles. Initially, it was Barnabas in the leading role. You say, how do you know that? Well, if you look at 1225 of Acts, or even 13 verse 2, or even look 13 2, set apart Barnabas and Saul. Right? It's Barnabas and then it's Saul. But at some point on those 12 months of ministry, the order reversed because Paul clearly had leadership skills and abilities. And he became the leader. He was the apostle anyway. And so it became what? The order was in verses, let's look at verses 15. Chapter 15, you look at verse 2 or 22 or 35. And it's the order's what? Paul and Barnabas. It's Paul and Barnabas. Clearly a reversing of their roles. So Barnabas assumed a back seat role, and the Paul the Apostle became the leader of the pack, if you will. So they have different personalities. Clearly Paul's was a leader who took charge of the situation. And Barnabas, you could easily see him as having a different personality who would support the person who's leading. But notice that they also had, number two under B, they had contrasting loyalties. This is where they were different. Barnabas was invested in a guy named John Mark who happened to be, according to Colossians chapter 4, his cousin. So they both had parents related, and so here they are, cousins together, and Barnabas just has a soft part of his heart toward this John Mark guy, where Paul did not share that connection at all. He's not family. He's not related to this guy. 
And both men adopted different perspectives on who they should bring with them and partner with them in the, this gospel ministry. Now I want to pause just for a second and let's think this through for a second. It's not too surprising that Christians who share so much in common and who might be very mature in the faith, you might run into conflicts when it pertains to family loyalties. Let me tell you something. I ran into that all the time in my former church in Virginia. It was the Hatfields on this side, the McCoys on this side. And there have been many a local church that has suffered a huge rift within the church family when one family system votes together as a block. And they're all convinced that this is the only way to go. And there's another group over here, and maybe there's a smaller group over here who are related to each other, and they vote as a block. And boy, oh boy, they are very upset because their preference over the color of the carpet didn't go their way. Or more likely to happen, suppose you have someone who is related to family number one over here. He's, let's say it's a, a nephew or somebody. You know, doesn't go to the church, but they, go, they come and they're asking for support. I'm going to go on this mission trip. I'm going to be involved in this, 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 the mission, Christian mission. Can you come and support us? Well, everyone in that family is going to say what? Yes, we're related. We know this guy's good. Other people in the church might go, I don't know. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sold on that one. I wouldn't necessarily support them. So you can see how the potential for differences could cause something like that. And let me tell you something, folks. All of us are going to face situations where another believer is going to disagree with you, with me, with others of us here, based on a differences of opinion, based on differences in their loyalties and their personalities. It's going to happen. So therefore what? Don't be shocked. Don't be surprised when there are mature believers who lock horns over their preferences. It happens. It has happened, it happens, it likely will happen. Remember, you know, God's people have different personalities. We have to acknowledge that that's a factor in some of these things. And even so, we must remember that even the most seasoned believer may have as their experience this kind of relational strife. You say, oh, I just think that the longer I live, the more mature I am in Christ. I'm not going to run into this kind of fallout with somebody. Yes, you might. Yes, you will. It was Paul and Barnabas having this fallout. Secondly, another question we want to answer here in this text is, what do we find happened in the midst of this conflict? Well, again, as I said, it didn't take too long for Paul, with his leadership skills, to be what? To be the one who initiates a proposal. Hey, I got an idea. Let's go back, revisit all the churches that we've just now seen established in the previous year, which, by the way, that's an amazing thing that he wanted to do or suggest doing. Why? It wasn't a vacation. It wasn't a pleasant cruise trip. They were suffering. They were persecuted. They were running for their life at times. Paul had been stoned. Barnabas hears the idea. He concurs. I agree. Good idea. I like it. And Barnabas says at that point, verse 37, listen, I got one idea, Paul, for you. I'm going to make sure this time, let's take John Mark with us. What does he go back? 
Matter of fact, I'm telling you, I'm ready to go. Let's just be sure to take John Mark. He says it not once, he repeatedly says it. That's the tense of the verb there. He expressed his preference again and again. And guess what? Paul comes right back at him and says adamantly, I refuse to go. I'm not taking him along if, if it's not appropriate. We're not bringing this John Mark guy with us. Because why? Verse 38. According to Paul, John Mark was not a reliable gospel worker. He had what? He had deserted them. He had left and returned and gone back to Jerusalem. That's what it says in Acts 13, 13, if you want to read about the account of him leaving them. It's true. He wasn't exaggerating. He wouldn't make something up. It really did happen that way. Now, we don't know why. Why did this fellow named John Mark, why did he turn around and leave Paul and Barnabas and go back to Jerusalem? Is he intimidated by the thought of persecution? Was he immature? Was he didn't want to face the challenges of itinerant life, of moving from one place to another place to another place, and it's a lot, a lot of travel, a lot of eating other people's food? I don't know. Did he lack commitment, or was he afraid? We don't know. He just is unreliable, according to Paul. Barnabas, of course, doesn't share that point of view. He sees it from another perspective. He is adamant that his cousin John Mark deserved another opportunity to prove himself. He deserved a break, a second chance. Come on. He deserved the benefit of the doubt. Paul was looking at the qualifications required to be a person who is now going to build up these disciples and these churches in Galatia. And he's saying, listen, I am not going to tolerate somebody who's a quitter, who's a coward. I'm sorry, I'm not bringing this guy with us. Barnabas, on the other hand, he's looking for an opportunity to make and disciple his cousin, to work with him side by side, to model grace, to model the, the gospel courage to him again. And so what do we read in verse 39? You can just tell the level of steam, the level of of emotional expression of their frustration over this issue went up and up and up and up. Verse 39, there arose a sharp contention. Things really got heated between these two godly, gifted men. And By the way, I don't have time to fully expand on this, but if you look up the word that's found there, the sharp contention, Similar word is found in Hebrews 10, verses 24. It means to irritate, to nudge someone with an elbow, spur one another on to love and good deeds, to arouse someone to do it, which sometimes may encourage, may actually bring about somebody becoming a little annoyed with you. Now what happens? In this sharp contention, these two men were unable or unwilling to find middle ground. They, it's interesting what you don't read here. They are not going out looking for what? Outside intervention. We need some other people to help us in this decision. No. Uh, we don't read about anything about compromising. There's no prayer and fasting here. Isn't that interesting? No mention of prayer and fasting. That's been mentioned other times they made big decisions. But not here. They decided to go their separate ways. They decided to end a ministry partnership where they had suffered together, they had rejoiced together, they had partnered together in wonderful ways, seen tremendous spiritual fruit from their labor together. 
So what happened? Barnabas took John, uh, sorry, yeah, took John Mark, his cousin, and he headed right back to where he was from in Cyprus on the island there. Paul, on the other hand, recruited Silas. And with the blessing of the church there in Antioch, he headed back to these newly planted churches there in Galatia. Now let me make a few comments on this particular part. What happened? Notice that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, makes no comment here as to taking sides, as to which person was in the right and which person was in the wrong. Do you find that in your text anywhere? Not in mine. So it was a ministry choice. It was not under fundamentals of the faith. It was not under the fact that there were not enough resources here to go around. That's not the issue. They're disagreeing over this ministry choice. And I would say, let's be careful that we not find fault necessarily with one man or the other. That's not the point here. It doesn't seem to be saying. Both men agreed to disagree. And sometimes that happens. And that's why I came across, when I came across this quote by Derek Thomas, I thought he offered a lot of wisdom. I've got it there in your notes. There are times when the best of Christians will disagree, and no matter how hard they try, they will fail to come to the same mind. Now, again I say, these men were not superheroes. The best of men are men at best, right? These mature believers sharply disagree. By the way, little parenthesis, another indication that the Scriptures are inspired, that God had His hand in writing this, why otherwise would they write about all of these difficulties and the things that don't make the church look very impressive? I think it's because God wanted us to beware that there was problems even back in the early church. But these mature believers are disagreeing not over fundamentals of the faith, of orthodoxy, of what's the, the essential aspects of the gospel of grace, but they're, fun, they're, they're splitting, they're disagreeing over the assessment of a particular individual, of whether or not he's the right man to accompany them on this missions trip. And so we need to brace ourselves, it seems to me, if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to brace yourself for the reality that you're going to run into people who are believers of Jesus Christ who have personalities that may indeed rub you the wrong way. And let's also ask the question, are you a person that rubs people the wrong way? Do you sometimes have too forceful of a personality where things have to be your way? If not, you leave and go your off and do your own thing. That might be a dangerous precedent to set. But we must agree to disagree sometimes in accordance with the gospel of grace. What does that mean? It means that we need to be careful that if we do have a situation we don't agree with someone on, which is, again, a matter of opinion, a matter of preference, that we not go around trashing that person on Facebook that we not go around spreading this disagreement we had and making up additional uh, print, uh, parts of the story and putting it out there for everybody to read about online or out in social media, trying to convince 
your friends and convince other people that this other person is in the wrong, he's doing the wrong thing, and you're trashing him over a matter of changing, uh, of disagreeing over your opinion. We need to be careful that we not divide Christ's church over things that are matters of opinion. This is a personal matter between two brothers. This was not the fallout of local church leaders in a multiple setting. This was a personal matter between two brothers. And so we need to be careful, be realistic about our own flaws. We need to be realistic about our own personal preferences, our own personal assessments, realizing this is my personal preference. This is not something I can point you to a verse and say, it's clear what God's will is in this matter. No, it's my preference, your preference, we disagree on the matter. Other people may have a viewpoint that's just as legitimate as our own. And along these lines, I'll just offer this word of maybe application. I think it's very valuable that when members have a member meeting, that members at that meeting should voice their thoughts and their opinions, their preferences about a particular matter that's being discussed. It could be a person that's being considered to serve in some position of leadership within the church, whatever. You should speak your mind before the vote. But if your vote is voted down then you need to be humble about it and move on and not feel like everything, you can't have your way in everything. People have different preferences, different opinions, and therefore you need to be a person who becomes aware that you don't always get what you prefer in life, but we don't become a person who's disagreeable, having been um, not had everyone agree with you. Now let me go to the third point here, which I think is hopefully the most helpful part of this particular passage here in our consideration of it. What benefits were gained as a result of this conflict? Some of you may say, wait a minute. You mean something good came in all this mess? People going their separate ways, breaking with each other? Well, I do think there was some benefits. First answer, very obvious. One word, multiplication. Multiplication. Think about it. You had a team of two, Paul and, si Paul and Barnabas, and when that team of two splits, you got now Paul and Silas, you got Barnabas and John Mark, and guess what? You've got now two teams going out ministering. So you have double the potential of ministry effectiveness just because of this particular division. Second thing I would say is, in terms of the benefits, is that we need to never lose sight of God's sovereign purposes, of God's sovereign plans. Because God's at work, even here in the midst of what will be called a terrible, strong, contentious falling out. There are numerous ways in which this incident fulfilled the promise of Romans 8, 28, which says, God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. It does not say that all things are good. It says that God is working in the midst of those situations. It's not good, but He's going to work together so good somehow comes out of it. A couple examples here of how this worked in this situation. is Number one, Silas, the partner of Paul uh, in that second journey and third journey, was like Paul, a Roman citizen whereas Barnabas was not. 
So because both of these men, Paul and Silas, are Roman citizens, that means that they are therefore able to utilize that benefit as being a citizen of the Roman Empire to make an appeal to Caesar, and that gets them on this long road in which they make their way finally to Rome. And so looking back, that's an amazing benefit to have that together they shared uh, as Roman citizens. Secondly, it was no accident that Barnabas and John Mark head back to Cyprus, which is where Barnabas was from. And that was, if you recall, the first stop on the first missionary journey. So that when they left Antioch, they went immediately over to this island, and then they made their way over to Galatia eventually. When Paul and Silas move out, they're not going to repeat that pattern. Why? Because you've already got Barnabas, you've already got John Mark right there in Cyprus, so they're going to go the reverse direction and they're going to go right back to the last cities that they visited, Derby, Lystra, that area. And on that beginning of their trip, they run into Timothy. Timothy joins the forces with them, and they begin to what? See the effectiveness of having him along with their team, and so it all works together, ultimately for good. Thirdly, and this is much more significant under this idea of sovereign plan of God, listen to this very carefully here. When Barnabas took John Mark under his wing, when he invested in him at that point, he clearly had an effect upon this young man's life. And so that as time went on, this John Mark became known to be a person who was very effective in offering help to the ministry of the gospel. Colossians 4 verse 10, Paul writes and acknowledges this himself when he says, Barnabas Barnabas's cousin, Mark, sends you his greetings. How would he know? Because he's having fellowship with him. And if this John Mark comes to you, he says, welcome him. Be sure to welcome him like he's one of us. And then at the end of his life, in 2 Timothy 4, one of the last things that Paul writes, he now knows he's about to die as a martyr in Rome. He says, to Timothy, pick up Mark, bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Isn't that amazing? Paul, who rejected him and said, I don't want him on this trip, I'm sorry, he's not ready for prime time, is the Paul who says at the end of his life, what a useful guy for the gospel. I'd love to have him around me. Isn't that beautiful? Because Barnabas invested in him and gave him a second chance in ministry, John Mark gained the reputation of being beneficial being a person who's a servant for the gospel and very much helpful to have. So much so that Barnabas's cousin, this John Mark guy, joined forces at some point in as he got older and he spent much time with the Apostle Peter. You say, how do you know that? Well, it says in 1 Peter chapter 5 that Peter calls John Mark his son, which means we think it's like an adopted kind of, he took a lot of interest in this, John Mark in his young, young age. And Peter invested so heavily in his life that at later times, John Mark was the one who heard Peter's stories, heard Peter's accounts of Jesus' ministry, heard Peter talk about all that Jesus said and did. And it was Mark who wrote a gospel with all of those memories and associations from Peter. And that is the second gospel we have in the Bible written by Mark the cousin of Barnabas. Now, if you ask me, I would call that, 
if the Holy Spirit used him to write the gospel, I would call that guy a useful man, wouldn't you? All under the sovereign hand of God. They actually work together for good. Thirdly, one last answer to the question, how, what benefit was there, could there possibly be from this fallout? Well, you got these two godly ministry partners have this falling out. They're unable to be of the same mind, but they separated from one another. This is very important. Respectfully. Respectfully. Which, again, in your notes, with mutual respect. Mutual respect. Never do we read in the pages of Scripture any kind of trash talking about the other guy saying, listen, don't have anything to do with him. He's in the wrong. He doesn't have any good judgment. He's a person that you can't really trust, blah, 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 blah. No, we don't hear any of that. They clearly were people who had forgiven each other. They didn't hold on to, years later, any kind of harboring animosity or resentment against each other. You say, how do you know that? 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul mentions Barnabas and says, listen, here's a worthy servant. I'm a worthy servant. We're people who, who are working in the ministry and should really be compensated for that. He puts them in the same categories himself. Hebrews 12, 14, you should maybe write that verse down. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Pursue peace with all men. That's the goal we're working toward. Peace sometimes means what? We agree to go different ways. But we do it respectfully. The Gospel reminds us that just as God has shown us forbearing grace, even though what? We have been disagreeing with Him many times, going our own thing, refusing to submit to His ways at times, but He's shown us grace. We are to show the same grace to our brothers and sisters who disagree with us. So here's my final point. It's okay to disagree, but it's not okay to be disagreeable. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that in a perfect world, we wouldn't have all this serious, sharp contention that we see in this world. And we know that this can be painful, Lord. It can be really agonizing. But Lord, we pray that you would help us in the midst of the reality that we are different, that all of us are different. We have all sorts of unique aspects to our individuality, that you've made us this way. There's much diversity within the body of Christ. We pray that our unity will be around the gospel. Our unity will be around glorifying Christ, making much of Jesus, of showing love and consideration to others around us, and that we might be a people who are commending how we face our disagreements over things of opinions and preferences, but do it in a way, Lord, that never brings dishonor to the name of Christ. And so, Lord, today as we gather at your table, we pray that you might once again remind us of the greatness of your love demonstrated in the giving of yourself for sinners, taking upon yourself our, penal our penalty, our punishment, and instead giving us the status of becoming your children by faith and being clothed by your righteousness. We pray that you would now minister to us as we celebrate and remember 
your death until you come again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.